text with us. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. Um, appreciated Dan um, helping us finish out chapter 1 and start chapter 2 last week. Um, did a great job at, at just expounding on Paul's call um, for unity. So the, the book of Philippians, the letter, is written from the Apostle Paul from prison in Rome to the church in Philippi, which he had planted 12 to 13 years prior. And he's writing this letter to a church that he loves. If if you're familiar with the New Testament, if you've read many of Paul's letters, often um, his letters come with a little little bit of bite to them, um, some some firmness to them because there's issues at, at hand. And yet with the church at Philippi, we see a church that he just dearly loves, that he is wanting to, to serve and minister to even as he is removed from them. And that there's just been this, um, this grace and love back and forth from those who make up the church to Paul. Um, and so he's writing a letter, wanting to encourage them, wanting to pastor them, but also beginning to help prepare them for some opposition that they're facing. Um, they are in a very, very patriotic place. And, and I know when you hear the word patriotic, your first thought is red, white, and blue. Um, but they are right patriotic um, to Rome. This place has been full of former soldiers um, so that there would be a deep allegiance to the nation of Rome and to the emperor. And, and so they're a church now in a place that holds deep reverence for the state. And yet Paul is calling them to trust Jesus, right? To call him king and to give their allegiance to him, which is going to come into opposition to, to Nero and to the, to the nation. And I think it's important for us this morning as we look at Philippians 2, um, it's just to know that we are in a unique time in history. Um, there are always risk um, to, our, to the church, to our faith. But right now, there is a, a very much a, a desire to see the church divided, right? We see this, or Dan mentioned this last week, that that we are kind of in an either-or place, right? That you're either for me or you're against me. And, and we have very little room for, for civil discourse, right? For civil disagreement. Um, there's very little um, opportunity to listen and not to just yell back. And yet, in, in whether you want to talk about race right now, if you want to talk about COVID right now, if you want to talk about November right now, in every situation, things are ripe for me to be really upset with you and for you to be really upset with me, Right? And even if you don't go into the conversation wanting that, it just feels like everything is a hot-button issue and everything is ripe to divide. Listen, the Lord has been extraordinarily gracious to Redeemer for the last nine years. That There has been a spirit-given oneness and unity that cannot be man-made. It cannot be created that God has just given to us. And I am grateful for that. I am abundantly grateful for it in this season right now. Um, but I, I, as Danny and I were talking this week, um, it's not like a divine birthright that we can't lose, right? That, that, that disunity that the world is seeking to sow, that discord, it can come. And it, and it is coming for the church at, at large, right? That if we can divide on non-gospel issues, right, the gospel gets pushed to the side. When we walked through First Timothy, 
several months back, right? That, that Paul's admonition to Timothy was, listen, the church has to be like the buttress in the community. And if it is, right, and if it's set up and if it's healthy and it's unified, then the gospel and the mission can go forth and do the work that it needs to do to pierce darkness and to see those who are currently far from Jesus come into the community, that enemies are made into family. But if the church is in shambles, if it's in disarray, if it's disunified, right, then all the energy, all the time, and all the effort is put into putting out fires within while the world burns around, right? And so Paul very much cares. Listen, he's like, church, I love you in Philippi. You are beloved to me, but I can sense some murmuring, some grumbling, some opposition that's coming both within and without. And if we don't deal with this, Right, you lose your voice for the gospel. And so let's pick up with this in mind that, that this passage is extraordinarily relevant to us now. We see this beautiful poetic passage beginning in verse 5. So he writes, So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now you see this like like this hymn, this poetic passage here, right? And if and if you were not with us last week or if you haven't looked, I want you just to quickly look at verses three and four as Dan um, preached last week. Do nothing, so he's writing to the church now, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Right? So he had kind of laid out an imperative, an admonition of, church, this is what it should look like. This is what you should do. But we know that in Christianity, we do not start with the imperative. Right? We don't start with, now go do this thing. Try real hard. Figure it out. Work. But that it's all, all of our imperatives, all of our obedience, all the things that we're asked to do in faith is because of who Jesus is and what he's done. So Paul says, listen, this is what I want you to do. I want you to to look at others as more important than yourself. I want you to not do anything out of selfish ambition. I want you to be humble. How? Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he just begins to hold up Jesus. to, To make us to look, to glance at him again. In verse 6, we we have this claim of Jesus's, this reminder of his deity. Who though he was in the form of God, this word for form, maybe your your translation says nature. It just means that he is fully and completely divine. That he has all the characteristics, all the nature of that which he is being compared to, which is God the Father. Right? And so what this, even where where we could begin with this, is that the fact that Jesus ends at the cross, right? That the immortal was to die. He gave consent to death, right? Like that he is fully divine. 
The cross was not something he had to suffer. He had to do. Listen, he had to do it for us. He did not have to do it. He was fully divine. He had nothing to gain other than us. Right? That he was in equality with God. That he was fully divine. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. So I think it's important for us that this morning there's kind of two twin truths. Which scripture loves to do this to us. It loves to give kind of two thoughts that seem like they're counter um, productive, and yet they're both true. The first is this, is we think too highly of ourselves, right? We, when we think of Jesus stepping out of heaven into human form, we're like, we're not that bad, right? Like who wouldn't want to be human, right? And, and the, the, there's a part of us that goes, it doesn't feel like that big of a step, right? That we've become so comfortable with Jesus in human form that it's like, it's not that big of a deal. And there's really, I don't think, a great way to draw that analogy out as to the Holy One, divine, stepping into frail humanity. Right? So if, if I was to say, hey, it, it, it's like a, a human stepping into cockroach form, right? Cockroaches kind of have this offensive, distasteful thing. Um, but, that, but that's not a great analogy, right? Because he, he deeply loves us, which is the second twin truth is that we think too highly of ourselves so we don't see the significance of Jesus stepping into humanity, right? There should be a little more of a kind of a, an offense or a little bit of a, almost like, are you sure? Like, why are you doing this? And the second thing is this, that you are deeply loved, right? That he did it because he loves you, right? That he is bringing glory to the Father, but that he was pursuing and rescuing us. That he was doing it because we are deeply, deeply loved, And I want you to hear the language that Paul uses, right? That he was a servant, that Jesus was, right? That he was a servant, that he was humble, that he was going to die, and that that death was going to be a curse because it was uh, an offensive, despicable death on a cross, right? There was no one in the church in Philippi, I think we can say with pretty much certainty, wearing a cross at this point. It was not a symbol in that regard. It was this offensive instrument of cruelty and torture and death. And so what we see is that he is laying down. He is self, he's pouring himself out on our behalf rather than holding on to like what are his rightful claims. Church, could we compare that for just a second to our current culture that says that your truth is what matters most? That your self-identity is what matters most. That what you think of yourself and what you want your truth to be should be ultimate and held high. And what do we see Jesus doing? Who he rightfully is without air, spot, blemish, sin. He pours out and puts on frail humanity on behalf of those that he is pursuing and loving. Right? He doesn't come saying, well, if you only really knew. Right? He's not saying, hey, my self-expression is what matters most. But he came out of humility, out of pursuit, and out of love. Rather, so now we have a claim of deity, now we're going to have a claim of humanity. Listen, verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of of a servant being born in the likeness of men, right? Rather than holding up who he was in all of its glory, he puts on flesh. 
he pours himself out, empties himself. And so what, what is this emptying, right? It's not that he lays aside the divine, right? It's that he lays aside, right, some of the, the outward expression of his glory, right? How do we know this? If you look at the transfiguration, right, where he's on the mount, right, and they see, like, the veil is pulled back for just a moment, and they're like, oh, you're not exactly what you, we thought you were. Look at the glory, and they're like, let's just stay here and worship. This is sufficient, and then the veil is like kind of is pulled back and Jesus says, hey, the mission's not over. It's not done. Right. That that glory that if we were to see him in the way that he was right, that we could not even begin to fathom or imagine. And yet he veils it with humanity, but he doesn't lay aside his divinity, that he is the God man. It's, it's the hypostatic union that he is fully God and fully man together. And it's a mystery. Right. Of, of how that exactly works and how that exactly comes but he lays down some of the privileges of being the son of god he lays down some of the privileges of being divine the glory listen to what he says this is john 17 5 and now father glorify me in your presence with the glory that i had with you before the world existed right so you get this idea that he has laid aside some of the glory to put on humanity, and he's saying, but my glory will be revealed again. And the transfiguration showed it to three of the the disciples, right? Like, hey, here's who he really is, right? And if you saw this, you couldn't begin to fathom it. And so Jesus is saying, I know this glory that I've temporarily laid down will be picked up again. Church, Adam, when presented with the opportunity in the garden to trust God, or to become like a God. What did he do? He attempted to seize the mantle of like, I want to eat from the tree. I want to know everything. I want to think everything. I'm going to be like God. And he failed. And then God steps into humanity. Right? That he succeeds in the, in the area where Adam had failed. That Jesus is the God-man. Emmanuel. God with us. And I think we have to see this humiliation, the, the offense of the gospel. Because listen, the gospel says some hard things this morning. It says some hard things. Throughout. You're not enough. Right? That's not easy for us to hear, especially as Western Americans, that we're not enough in and of ourself. Right? It, it says things like, you can't fix it. Your ingenuity, your spiritual bootstraps are not going to be sufficient. Your religious behavior, the things that you avoid doing, the things that you that you do instead, right? Like in, in church attendance or giving, he's like, those things aren't going to fix it, right? That you're going to have to lay down and lose your life in order to gain it. The fact that Jesus was cursed, right? That he was humiliated and betrayed and it looked like a loss, right? It didn't look like victory. The, the, the cross looked like Jesus lost. That's why it became a stumbling block to the Jews, right? And the offense of the gospel is still a stumbling block that we as Western Americans don't want to believe we're not self-sufficient, that we're not enough on our own, that we can't figure it out. And the gospel says you're not, but the good news is, is Jesus is. 
And that he loves you and that he has come for you. And he has been humiliated and broken and betrayed on your behalf. And has satisfied the wrath of God. So that you can go back to where you belong with God the Father. That you can walk with Jesus. That you can have him for all of eternity as you are full of the Spirit. That we have to see this offense. In church, right, the, the church in Philippi would have been hearing, hey, we're suffering. We have some opposition. Paul's in prison. He's suffering. Right? They're, they're beginning to go, oh, there's a common thread to this. Difficulty. Suffering. Persecution. Opposition. That eventually ends in the culmination of vindication. Right? That there was a day, right, where Jesus will be exalted and every knee will bow. There will be a day where we will be with him for all time and every tear will be wiped away and all sin will be no more. So he's saying, for now, walk in the steps that Jesus walked. That for a period, he was mocked, mistreated, humiliated, and then is vindicated for all time. That church, that's our story too, even if right now we're still living in the midst of difficulty. So listen now, look at verse 9. Look at the exaltation. So he lays out in 6 through 10 that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And now there in in verse 9, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. He's saying, I'm going to lift Jesus up and there will be a, a day where every knee will bow out of one of two things, allegiance we're out of fear of authority. Right? It's one of two, but every knee is going to bow. And so Paul is lifting Jesus up and saying, look at him. This is where your salvation comes from. Look at Jesus. He is what we need. He is sufficient. And he is going to be lifted up for all of eternity. In Isaiah 45, we have this scene where God is talking to Israel. I want you to listen to what he's saying. This is verse 20 of chapter 45 of Isaiah. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols, and they keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides, besides me? A righteous God and a Savior, there is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. See what Paul's doing? Paul is saying, hey church, you know Isaiah 45. You know that God has said that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And what I'm telling you is that's Jesus. That he is your rescue. That he is God. That he is the God-man. He's saying the name that I'm going to give him above all others is Lord. Right? It's Lord. And he's saying this to a people 
who are being told to bow to Nero, to call Nero Lord, to call Rome, right, Savior and Rescuer. And so he's saying there's a decision to be made here as to who you will bow to, to who you will call Lord, to who your allegiance will go to. And is it to the kingdom that you live in or is it to the king of all kings? That we are called to the kingdom of heaven, we'll see in Philippians 3. It's like your knee will bow. And eventually it's going to bow to Jesus. And so you do it willingly or out of fear. Right? And so he has held Jesus up. He says, church, the way that you're going to be able to live with this kind of mindset is that you have to see Jesus like this. That he is everything and he is sufficient and he is enough. That he has been exalted. Church, you have to have this mindset. It's a call to act that we saw last week as Dan preached. Here we see the why and the how. And he's going to continue chapter 2 with some examples of what it looks like to have this kind of mindset. But I think if we're honest, this mindset of humility is just incredibly foreign to us. Right? It's not hard to, to read and to go, okay, humility. But it is so far from our daily practice, from our cultural norm, um, even in the church. I think that the idea of what would it look like to, to live with this kind of humility towards one another feels really difficult and foreign. But here's maybe a couple of examples as, as we look at how we can respond. One response is that we are not a people who boast. That we're not a bragging, boasting people. If we're going to boast, there is one thing to boast in, and that's in the cross. Right? Where, where the death of death was accomplished. But church, there's no room for pride. Like, what did you bring to the table? Right? Jesus has done it all. And has been gracious to rescue and to save us. Right? And right now, I think if, if you were to ask the world, and listen, I know the loudest voice typically gets the press, right? But if you look at, at, at comments on social media or news sites, if you look at the news, it is an arrogant, loud, prideful voice often claiming Christ. And that, Paul says, that, that doesn't jive. Like, it doesn't compute. And you'll even sometimes hear people say, well, you'll bow your knee one day. How is that loving? Right? How is it loving to say, right, like, well, you don't agree with me, but you'll, you'll know someday that I'm right. Instead of saying, listen... I too was an enemy of God and have been rescued by him. And ultimately what's going on here is there's, a, there's a, this thing in us that wants recognition. If I don't tell you, how are you going to know how smart I am? If I don't tell you, how are you going to know how right I am? If I don't tell you, how are you going to know how holy I am? How obedient? How good? Church, can, you just, can, can we hear this together? Jesus has already approved of you. You need no one else's approval. And whether you go through this life in complete anonymity, no one knowing who you are, it's okay. Because Jesus knows you. And he has given you all the approval that you need. And you're going to be with him forever. Right? In Matthew 23, it says that the one who is humble will be exalted. Right? But I think our tendency as Westerners, is to want to beat our own chest because we have right answers and we want to force that on others. And we want them to know it so that they'll really kind of give us a little credit as they worship Jesus and go, man, I'm glad they were so right. 
And so there's no room for boasting or pride. A second is this. Church, there's no room for for being consumers. In the religious realm. Right? Like how often have you heard someone say the reason they're looking for a new church is because their needs weren't being met? Right? Or I'm leaving because I need something different or I need something more. Or it's, just not, it's just not doing it for me and my family. Like Paul would be like, what? Like you're called to show humility to one another. You're called to look out for others' interests above your own. You're called to live out the one another's. You're called to be a family. Now listen, are there legitimate reasons that you might leave a church? Yes. Okay, there are. There are legitimate reasons that happens. But consumerism isn't one of them, right? That we are called to lean in together. Maybe, maybe we can wrap it up this way. Um, I want you to imagine showing up at your mom or your grandma's house, right, for a big meal. And everyone just comes in and plops down, and only one person's back there in the kitchen working. And they're kind of like looking out like, y'all want to eat today? Because I'm going to need some help. Right? Like that's, right, the expectation, right, and it often is that the family comes in and someone's setting the table and someone's taking out the trash and someone's helping cook, and, right? And there's just this, this big, loud, noisy moment. And we all sit down together. And I want you to imagine now going, Grandma, this wasn't very good today. Right? And like people just coming across the table, you know, like going, shut your mouth, you know, like, right? Instead, it's like we all had a role to play in it. We all had an involvement in it versus when you go out to eat. Right? And now you sit down and you're served. And there's someone to bring your plate, and there's someone to wash your dishes, and there's someone to take your plate, and there's someone to refill your tea glass. And if you don't like the food, you're like, take it back. Right? Now, that doesn't happen at home. Right? Not if you want to live. Like, and so many of us have made the church a restaurant. And we've come in and said, are my needs going to be met? Am I going to be satisfied? Take it back. The the New Testament, the the scriptures say the church is a family. And that we're a body and we need everybody playing their role. And everyone's role doesn't look the same, but together we make the meal happen. Right? Which means that Jesus is glorified. Because we're living out the one another's. We're sharing one another's burdens. And we're praying for one another. And we're forgiving one another. And we're showing grace when you don't deserve it. But because I've received an abundant amount of grace and salvation from Jesus. How could I begin to withhold that from you? And it begins to look beautiful. And the world sits up and takes notice that something different is happening there. They're in this together even when it gets difficult. Remember Paul is writing saying opposition's coming. Jesus is enough. But if you're going to be unified, you better have the mindset of Jesus. The third thing, the final thing is this. Is that we're not to be prideful boasters. We're not to be consumers. Instead, we are called to be humble. Listen, this means that there is no entitlement. You're not owed anything. And if there's a sense that you are, church, what is it, right, that God has given us but everything? He has rescued us from ourselves. He has removed idols from our life. He has given him grace and mercy 
that meets us and sustains us on a daily basis until the day we're with him forever, which then there will be no death and no tears and no sickness and no sin and no suffering, but perfection for all time. And you didn't pay for it. And you didn't earn it. Right? He's done it. And so then we're like, I feel entitled. He's given it all. So we're not owed and we're not entitled. Instead, we're humble. And so here's the good news. God has determined here and now in this time in the world, this time in history, and in this location, this is where you're to be. In this place. At this time. To make much of Jesus with these people. How do we do that? By having this mindset of Jesus. Doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, like Jesus did. So in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we gain redemption, and we also gain a model for how we're supposed to move forward. Listen, as he's writing to the church in Philippi, guess what? Rome doesn't exist anymore, right, as a nation. Like, I know the city of Rome exists, right? But the nation is gone. There is no more emperor. The church has withstood that. The church is still here. And I think for us as good West Texas Americans, we also need to be reminded there will be a day where America won't stand either. And the church will. The people of God will. Look, we don't long for that day. We don't want that day. We're not trying to hasten that day. But our hope is not in America standing or falling. And I know that is provocative to say that on the day after the 4th of July, right? And and we're not throwing rocks. We're not trying to start a fight. We're just saying we don't need America, although we love America. We need Jesus, right? And Jesus is the kingdom that we've been called to first and foremost. And so our allegiance, is it to Nero, right? Is it to America? Or is it to Jesus, and so we, we benefit from the freedom. We benefit so much. But there's a different kingdom that we're called to first and foremost. And so Jesus has called us to figure out how to live within the heavenly kingdom that's been placed, right, for a moment here in Pampa, Panhandle, Texas, America, in 2020 with all the difficulty that that occurs. He's saying, would you live this way with this mindset here and now for the glory of God and that others would see it and be attracted to it and find rescue and salvation. And so are we seeking the glory of God for our, ourself or for our business or for our country? Or are we seeking the glory of God for his glory and his sake? Church humility is attractive and that humility is subversive. It looks foreign and uncomfortable to the world. And yet it is the very mindset of Jesus. So it means we can show interest in people. It means we don't have to show partiality to anyone. Because everyone has value. Everyone has value in the kingdom of God. And this third way is to find a way. And here's the honest truth. It probably means you're going to get yelled at by both sides. Right? You're not going to really please anyone. Except Jesus. The one that we've been called to and will have forever. Church, we've been a rescued people. We want to look to him. And what Paul is going to do, and listen, if if you're uncomfortable, I I want you to imagine the church in Philippi being told, hey, Nero, who's, you know, just burning Christians, 
I don't want you to bow to him. I want you to walk with this mindset, and he's going to continue to lay this out um, through the rest of the letter, right? Would we have those ears as well as we sit in a place that has provided tremendous freedoms to us to ask those hard questions and to say those hard things and not fear that we're going to be strung up and burned alive today? And yet our allegiance is first and foremost to the king. So let's pray. Jesus, you are beautiful, and you're enough, and you are sufficient. So, Father, we would just ask that you would, God, would you allow us to, to begin to flesh out what it means to have this mindset of you? God, that we can nod in agreement to some of these verses and some of these thoughts, and yet the, the implications of it and, and how we actually do it feel so foreign and so difficult. But would we be a humble people who would look out for one another, place others' interests above ours, trusting that our interests will also be cared about because others are doing that as well? God, that we wouldn't wait for someone else to love us before we love. We wouldn't wait for someone else to give us grace before we give grace because you've already done that to the degree that we need. And so now we can freely do it, whether we're getting approval or credit for it or not. God, would you bind us and unify us in in this way? That the only way that we're going to be steadfast against, against the changing and moving of the world, against the enemy who is seeking to, to devour and to prowl around to destroy us, is if we stand in you together, unified and steadfast. And in order for that to happen, you've said we need your mindset. So, Father, would we not simply nod in agreement, but would you begin to stir something in our hearts, in our minds? Would we, would we wrestle with this? Would we discuss it, God? And would we begin to walk in it? Because, Jesus, you've made us yours. In your name we pray.